0: fire and water those were the four elements that they thought of and they were trying to find a unity first that these three elements come from one of them but it doesn't make much difference which one of them you pick out you can't reduce the other three to these one so and Maximilian said I guess we have to introduce a supernatural idea we have to appeal to some beyond but how shall we get that beyond to explain this world if, if that beyond is unknowable now, therefore, if you have earth, air, fire, and water, suppose you have a gallon of each, and if then I have to have a beyond, a supernatural, to explain that, and I have one faucet here, and I want, a, I want my earth can filled, or my air can, and my fire can, and water can, and I've got to get it out of the same faucet. Well, that was his idea. In other words, if you start with earth, air, fire, and water as though you already know what they are without first getting your information about what they are from the only source of information any man could have. Then, of course, the only God you have is a God who can't tell you an iota or tittle about it because he is himself unknowable to himself and couldn't tell you anything about yourself. That is to say, how do I get out of this faucet? Whatever liquid you want or well, you like best. Spire? Is that? Is that a new drink around here? Or Sprite? My goodness, how could I be so ignorant? Now, it must be wonderful. Now, you see, the great virtues of Sprite or of Coca-Cola, aren't one fights for this and one fights for that. Well, to me, they're all equally reprehensible as far as I'm concerned. As a drink in comparison with a drink of cold water, but the point is, if you're going to get this, your bottle filled, and you're going to get their bottle filled, it's got to come from all the same sources. It's all one mixture up there. Now you see the utter meaninglessness of it all. But we must hasten on. Then the next manner, says all is air. He thought it was more volatile than water and would serve better as a general principle. Well, then Heraclitus said all is flux." He says, what's the matter with all you ignorant people ahead? have come ahead of me? I'm the deepest thinker of all. That's what he said. He said, he was very modest, and, uh, he said, you took for granted that earth, air, fire, and water can't turn over into each other, that they're stable, solid, that the quality is the thing, and the thing is the quality, but what actually happens is that they do turn into their opposites. Opposites turn into one another. There's the beginning of Karl Barth's theology, that God turns, <laughs> turns fully, no, without fully, I mean it, God turns wholly into man's says ganz und gar oder gar nicht, wholly and complete or not at all. There's nothing left of God that isn't wholly expressed in his revelation, or man is wholly absorbed back with God, with Christ into deity. Now... Uh, therefore, he says, opposites do turn. All is flux. Pantere. There isn't any such permanence. Now, that's modern pragmatism. It's modern existentialism. Time is ultimate. All reality temporalizes itself. Reality Zeitgeist. Says Heinemann. Well, now, that's the kind of philosophy we already have here in Greeks. All is flux. Parmenides says, what on earth are you talking about? He says, nothing, folks. All is static. And how do I know that? By the law of contradiction. Because only that can exist, which I can intelligently, according to the use of the law of contradiction, say must exist. Now, that's the purest rationalism that has ever been discovered. Spinoza, the Dutch Jew, had equally pure when he said the order and connection of things is the same as the order of connection of ideas but the point is that this rationalism which was introduced in paradise into the heart of man by Satan finds its expression here very strikingly when a man a mere creature says that God must be what I can think him to be as by the law of contradiction when I apply that he must be his conclusion was there cannot be a creation out of nothing there cannot be He's not saying I'm looking for evidence and I'm willing to follow it wherever it may lead, but he's saying there cannot be such a thing as creation out of nothing. He was perfectly consistent when he said that. On the basis of the fallen man's approach, apostate thinking, as we saw which introduced rationalism, there just cannot be creation out of nothing. Why? Well, it's contradictory. It says God was unchangeable, the unchangeable eternal in his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then this God makes a creature. And then he has a lot of dealings with this creature, which is subject to time and change. And then can you say that that God, after he's done this and done that, and he's now in a new relation, and he's still the same? Surely he's the same, but he's also changing. Now, some of you boys are thinking about getting married, I'm Sure. And you think you're going to assert your sameness after that. And then you get married, and then some of you will say, I'm still the same. Well, obviously you aren't. You've been reduced from a substantive to an adjectival position. (laughs) You are now a modifier of your wife. She has modified you, and you modify her just a tiny bit. You start off, I want grits every morning and she feeds you what she feels like doing and you're happy to get it. (laughs) That's the stage I'm in now. Now, I'm a happy slave. Now, don't you see? Uh, In other words, creation out of nothing is impossible, said Parmenides. Now, he was absolutely right on his assumption, on his presupposition, that man is the one who can determine... By his own intellect, what is and what is not, what can be, what cannot be. That's logical, that's consistent, that's the application that follows. Granted, that Satan was right and Adam was right in following him, that man must wipe out God and then find a God, a new one, in his place. Well, now, at this point, you now get Plato and Aristotle, or Socrates first, but Plato and Aristotle... There were where the... Uh... That's not very clear. Can you see some old Sartre now? <laughs> well, he had a good wife. His name was Sintipi, and they argued once in a while, as all good couples do, and you know what he threw her in the water one time, the river, and uh, she was sinking... And she, they had argued about this, whether it was clipping or whether it was cut. So she said it was clipping, and when she was sinking, just her two fingers were still above water. <laughs> they were still going. And so Socrates lost the argument after all. <laughs> he drowned his wife. Ah. Socrates, as you know, is oftentimes presented as the greatest moral character of Greek history, very well maybe he is. But that he introduced the principle of inwardness, that it is in man that the truth is found. Well, that is what he did, and it is that principle which Plato and Aristotle carried out.
1: Plato said,
0: oh, well, you can't say all is flux, you can't say with Parmenides that all is static. You mustn't be so exhausted in your statements, you must say reality is divided into two, the other part is static. And the lower part is flux. Here is Heraclitus. He can have his world of flux. In this world, things change into the opposites of themselves. But there is an eternal world, of truth, of goodness, of beauty. And God is that those principles of truth and goodness and of beauty. And man somehow is in between here. He has an intellect which makes him participate of the deity. He's a chip off the old block, so far as he's here lower part of him, what's under the midriff, as well as emotions, that connects Ulysses with the foxes, but what's above the midriff is intellect, unites him with the gods, and therefore, he is still applying Parmenides' principle, that man's essence is his intellect, and therefore man's essence makes him divine. Man is basically divine, and consequently, he has the right to do what Parmenides did, because he, being divine in his intellect, he can determine the nature of what ultimate being is. Now then, he says, but we can't carry this thing through as logically as Parmenides did. We have to allow for some sort of reality to time and change. And so we say we're partly this and partly that, and we've come from this, we don't know why, we've chipped off, just as if you took an ice spick and chipped off little chips of ice off a hundred pound cake of ice and these little chips of ice floated around in in a large bowl of water. Then he says, when we are truly ourselves, we become one with God and when we die, says Socrates, then we become immortal because we are deiformed, that is, we partake of this form, this mold, this eternal idea of God. Immortality is deiformity, is absorption into divinity. That's why we should not do as is often done, as Christians say, well, we have good argument for immortality. We've got the one that is based on philosophy such as this, and then we have the Bible in addition. Because, you see, if this argument for immortality is true, then the Christian idea of immortality is not true. You can't have immortality by being absorbed in deity then you aren't there anymore. Then you're lost. You're completely lost in God. Your individuality is lost. That's good Eastern mysticism, All to be nothing, All to be absorbed in God, but it's not Christianity, that a creature made in the image of God is redeemed, is restored to eternal participation in the joy of God through Christ. Now, that's Plato's system. It was dualistic. It was an attempt to overcome some of this horrible monism which reduced everything to one big ice cake or you could chip off the ice cake and of course have a million pieces of ice as the individualists and the sophists did and the atomists. You can cut little pieces of ice and still smaller pieces and they'll individually float around but when you patch them together again it's the same old ice cake again. Now that monism penetrates all this Greek thinking. And particularly, in conclusion, it controls even Aristotle's thing. Now, Aristotle, method is the one that the Roman Catholics have built upon. Aristotle says, he was in Plato's classes for 20 years, and he got some of his teaching, but he said, look, we must not have such a dualism of one world against the other, but we must have here this we mustn't say this is non-being and that's real being so that change is really not existent at all and only eternal changeless being is existent. We must say this is potential being and that's actual being and that everything is working up From the lower to the higher when I have a statue that I'm making I have that marble stuff and I have to have a mold or a form so I must... So this is called as a rule the matter-form scheme or the form-matter scheme. Now, by means of that, man's that form-matter scheme, the Greeks, climaxing their thinking in Aristotle, are attempting to explain all reality and including God, the Christian God, in this. Now it is, to me, obvious, and I hope it is to you, that you can't tie Christianity onto such a thing as that. Because if you... Except this, then you don't need Christianity anymore. Then man is not a sinner, because he's not a creature in the first place. He's just whatever being he has is exactly the same kind of being that God has. And uh, if you are a divine being, essentially, you can't be a sinner, you aren't a sinner. You may have accidentally fallen into a mass of rottenness, which is pure non-being, and all of that, but that isn't your fault. So the Greeks have no idea of creation, no idea of sin, no idea of the need of salvation. They didn't have a creator God. The God of Aristotle thought thinking itself does not create the world. He doesn't know any man. He doesn't know himself. He's not a he or a she, but he's an it, a pure principle or form. Now that's the logical outcome and the actual historical outcome of Greek thinking. And it is nonetheless to this Greek thinking, to its climactic expression in Aristotle's form-matter scheme, that the Roman Catholic Church has connected itself and built upon, saying, look, this is good theism, good theism, and we need only now that Christianity. Thomas Aquinas says, man by reason, as the Greeks showed, can find out the nature, find out that God exists. Well now, does Paul actually do that in Acts 17? No. Sometimes he says, you see, God is not worshipped by hands. God must not be tied down creator to the creature. And the creature must not be identified with God. He must not be thought of as one. Monism is from the devil. That's what Paul says. Now, you might therefore say that he says, seems to say the opposite when he appeals to certain of your own poets who have said we are also his offspring. Now, that is the best argument there is for the traditional position, but it doesn't bear out its point for this reason, that the poets to which he appeals were Stoic philosophers. They were utter monists, pantheists, and when they said that we are the offspring of God, they didn't mean that we are the creatures of God. They meant the exact opposite They meant that God has overflown, we are of the same substance with God. Now, Paul certainly did not mean that, because if he had meant that, he wouldn't have been talking about Christ through whom the worlds were made, about man being made of the image of God. In other words, Paul is breaking down this whole structure. He's challenging it. To be sure, he's making a point of contact with it. In the sense that you would make, I see that you're very religious people. Let's talk about religion. And I'm telling you about a God who is the creator. Now, you have no creator God. You have repressed that. You are holding under the truth and unrighteousness. The whole of your Greek philosophy, its development, step by step, coming to its climactic expression, is a colossal attempt of the natural man to repress this creator-creature distinction. How, then, can you build Christianity on a form-matter scheme of philosophy that undermines its very foundations? It just isn't true. It isn't biblical. And yet, that's what the Roman Catholic position has done, and unfortunately, that very method has been introduced into Protestantism. But we haven't time now to talk about that. We'll talk about that next time. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee again for that salvation which is in Christ. For Thou hast redeemed us from this monism, from this worship of the creature more than the creator. May we not be foolish enough to seek to build Christianity upon a philosophy which rejects it and which is built upon its opposite. For Jesus' sake, amen. We've been discussing so far what seemed to me to be the mistaken way of presenting the Christian religion to unbelievers and the more biblical way. Now, we, in the first hour, we tried to distinguish as clearly as we could between what is the biblical position. That biblical position is two-circle position, namely that God is sufficient to himself, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the world is created by him out of nothing, or into nothing but there was no stuff no eternal matter already existing out of which God made it now when I once bought a pair of wooden shoes in the Netherlands I went to the wooden shoemaker and he made the wooden shoes out of wood which was already there he didn't make the wood all he could do was take the wood and give it a certain form according to the shape of my foot including the corns now that's a wonderful thing They're very comfortable and very good for you, wouldn't choose. Now, but that's not the Christian religion. There was no stuff already there out of which God made it. Now we saw what the development was of the position which rejects that. Now that position was rejected at the beginning of history by Adam, representing all of us. Therefore we, as Romans, as Paul tells us, in Romans 5.12 and elsewhere, we, represented as we were in Adam, come into the world with an attitude of negation to the two-circle position of truth as it is in Christ. We don't start with saying that we prove the existence of a God or even of God. A God isn't God. A God, who probably exists, doesn't exist at all or means nothing, is worse than Anti, is anti-Christian. The God of Christianity is the God which is revealed in the scriptures through Christ and couldn't be otherwise revealed to us and couldn't be known by us otherwise than by his self-revelation so that he has made us in his image and when we react properly we act as those that are children in the family. We're covenant, made covenant keepers. We become by sin covenant breakers. Now, all men, therefore, since the fall of men, are these covenant breakers, and so were the Greeks. They were just not these innocent people that you read about in the history of philosophy books that opened their eyes one morning, so to speak, and wanted to find out a unity for experience, whereas formerly everything had been unrelated and had been, uh, they hadn't been able to tie it together, so that all is water, that that was an advance. Sometimes, even in histo- histories of philosophy written by Christian people, were told, look, things are progressing nicely toward the Christian position. This was sort of materialism, and that's not too good when you say all is water, or even all is air, which is a little better. But when you get to Plato, when you have an ideal world, and when you get to Aristotle, and you have a thought thinking itself, and when you have a teleology, an idea that there is a purpose in the universe, then, or even with an actual who wanted to, beyond, who wanted to interpret this world in terms of a world that's beyond, some Christian people say, look, if they only keep going long enough, they'll get there. Or at least we can take the highest of these non-Christian positions and build our Christian religion upon the highest of them. Now, I don't think the Bible puts it that way, if you want to make the difference between Christian positions, non-Christian positions, you can put materialism down here, mechanism, Watson, behaviorist psychology, and what have you, and all the bad people. Who are some of the bad people? Anybody suggest any names of, or positions or bad people? No, that belongs way up here. B.P. Bible Presbyterians, or <laughs> Personalism, whichever you want. Huh? He, John Dewey will put him, he's a process philosopher, <laughs> pragmatist and Pragmatists and materialists and mechanists, all the bad people. And then, where do the realists go? And the idealists, there are idealists. Now, I don't want to take any time for this to speak up, But certainly, we may, relatively speaking, distinguish it between them just as you may, relatively speaking, distinguish between a man who's in the gutter and one who lives in the suburbs and is a very decent, well-met sort of fellow and pays to the Red Cross and what have you. But from the Christian position, all of these people are lost and equally lost and lost for the same reason, namely that they are sinners and are not willing to repent from sin and will not accept the two-circle position when it is presented to them. Their own position, certainly matter, materialism, is a monism. All is matter. Certainly mechanism, all God is part of it. And certainly also, however, in idealistic forms of philosophy, God and man are still of one piece. Platonism, for instance, is not any better as an idealism, or, as it was earlier called realism, that is is the lowest of the non-Christian possessions. That is, he's anybody who believes in Platonism is lost in the interpretive enterprise, in what he's trying to make out of life, and is lost forever, just as much as anybody that is a John Deweyist. Now and similarly with Boston personalism. Now I'm not talking about individual people who may be Christians and who are because they hold such a philosophy, but if they really believed and really trust for life and for death on what they call a personalistic interpretation, because they think, oh, look, how much better is our position than these bad people down here? I was in California a number of years ago and spoke to Flewelling, who is a great personalist, a follower of Boston personalism, the editor of the magazine called The Personalist, he told me how many boys he had led toward the ministry and helped them because at least he believed, he set in a personal God, and he thought that that was helping them to believe the Christian religion. Well, of course, it did know such thing. It does know such thing because all of these positions should be regarded as being on the wrong side of the fence. Now, if you're over here and if the roof is slippery, it isn't going to take too long or you're going to slide down down there, just the same. It doesn't help you much. And if you've got one leg over the roof on this side and the other on that side, the question is where your heart is. If your heart is in the Christian position, then, of course, you can have all kinds of aberrations intellectually. We all have them. But then you can be very confused and yet at heart be committed to the Christian position. But if you think your position out consistently, then there are two positions, and only two positions, and to see how that simplifies matter. On the traditional method of apologetics, you would have to know all about all of these systems. And you could meet somebody on the train and strike up a conversation with them, and uh, he would say, well, uh, look, I've got new information in our philosophy. We have this, that. I agree with you. This is bad. That's bad. That's bad. But I've got something good, and since you don't know about it, maybe it will be good, and maybe you will still discover yourself that it's better than what you've got. Now, you see, the Christian position can't work that way, because we do say and have to say that there is no position, and there never will be a position. We have to be doctrinaire a priori, absolutistic about the Christian faith, not because we have discovered it, because we are smarter... More intellectual, more brains, have done deeper research. None of those things. What we have received, we have received by grace. God has reached down to us in the call. Now, therefore, the only way to argue with people is to not attempt to build up. If you build up from the bottom, from the assumption that man is autonomous, that he already understands himself, in terms of himself, in relation to his environment, before he has become a Christian. And then, as a man, then add to it, well, there must be more to it than I've got, and so forth, and I maybe need a God, and so I project a God. Then you see, the God that you get will always be a projection of yourself. And Paul makes it pointedly clear when he says there are those who serve and worship the creature more than the Creator. The Creator-Creature distinction. Two kinds of people. Those who worship and serve the Creator, those who worship and serve the creature. Only Christians worship the Creator. If you're a Christian, you're a theist. If you're not a Christian, neither are you a theist in the proper sense of the word. Mohammedans aren't theists. They believe in one God, to be sure. Plato also believed in one God, and you can call that a general, indefinite type of non-Christian theism. I do It doesn't matter what words you use. But, strictly speaking, only no one comes to the Father, says Jesus, but by me. Now then, this is Christian theism. Now let's look then at the effort that is made, or has been made, by the Roman Catholics to tie on to what was a non-Christian position. This non-Christian position in the time of Paul had run into the ground, into skepticism, into complete denial of the existence of any such thing as a creator. We we saw that you could size it up in the form, matter scheme of Aristotle. That is to say, Aristotle, according to the Romanists, presents the best there is of Greek thinking. Some others today say Plato does. It doesn't make much difference which of the two you take. Now, here's man. He finds a lot of facts around himself. He has assumed the ultimate contingency of those facts, the bruteness, the non-createdness. Now, that's the assumption. He doesn't prove that, but he takes that for granted. Every human being since the fall takes that for granted. Now, there are certain things you just don't talk about in polite society. And so, also in this case, you don't argue the question about the facts. You assume that they are not created. Now, all Greek philosophy assumes that the facts that are here and man himself is not created. Professor Bowman used to say that, according to Greek thinking, all is at bottom one. Well, that's monism. Then all diversity comes out of the one, that is, oozes out, overflows just as if the gulf were overflowing here, well, the water that is here then, if the gulf overflows, is gulf water. It's part of the gulf, so to speak, or the gulf goes out of itself. Now that is precisely, for instance, also what Karl Barth says about the world. It is, and about Christ, that Christ has the secondary divinity. The divinity expresses itself, goes out of itself, oozes out of itself, just like rivulets, as it were, or the Mississippi, going into little side streamlets. Now, therefore, all things are one at bottom, all things come out of the one, and then all things return to the one, are absorbed, reabsorbed into the one. Now, how it ever happened that a Christian can think that he can attach Christianity to that?
1: Instead of saying, look,
0: here are two mutually opposed positions. There can be nothing but absolute warfare between them. Now, that's what the Bible teaches, which does not mean that there must be warfare between people, that we must be discourteous or unkind to people. Quite the opposite. If you have been redeemed, then you're anxious to have others with you. You know they are deceived and self-deceiving. Satan is back of all of this. But man has deceived himself so that he really thinks that this is the truth. And then he goes on making new theories, new forms of self-deception. And one, he teaches it to his children and the self-deception carries on and carries on and down with the ages. And we are born in the midst of that atmosphere. We breathe it. It's in all the textbooks. It's in the philosophy books. It's all over in itself. Now, over against that, by grace, we have been taken out. Now, the Roman Catholic attempt is, therefore, to make a cross between these two positions. Its position is, therefore, maybe, possibly, well illustrated by this sort of thing. Now, again, I'm not saying Roman Catholics aren't Christians. Maybe many of them are better Christians than you and I are. Simple Roman Catholics are often good Christians. They trust, I've met them, those that trust in the Lord Jesus, not in Mother Mary, for their salvation. But the theological system, which is taught by the theologians and officially in the documents of the church, that is a synthesis between fire and water, between the two-circle position and the one-circle position. Now, this is how they make theism. They got it on the one-circle basis. They got it from Aristotle. Not that Thomas agrees with everything Aristotle teaches. He tries to patch up some of the things or trim it a little bit. When Aristotle talks, as he, in the nature of the case, must talk about the eternity of the world, it's always been there. The matter, the stuff has not been created. And Tommy thinks, of course, that that's going too far. So what he says, oh, well,
1: we must believe in
0: creation... As Christians, But don't you see, there's where this, the two systems crack, just like these doors at the back of the church. We haven't been able yet to find anyone that can cure them from their cracking. Well, Roman Catholicism has never found anybody that can keep their system from being torn apart in, from two mutual points of view. Now, whatever may prevail, whichever side may prevail, may be different in different men, but the system is this synthesis of a a point of view which builds up a life and worldview which envelops the whole of the two circles in itself. In other words, if you start from the Greek position, from the form-matter scheme, which takes for granted that there's an eternal principle of rationality somehow existing somewhere, and that there is also a raw stuff eternally coexisting, and that those two, the form and the matter, must somehow be brought to existence, that man is somewhere between, that he's drawn upward, and when he gets to the heights, then he is absorbed into deity, and he loses himself in it. That position, the form-matter scheme, envelops everything, is a comprehensive totality view. You can't argue with it, you can't coexist with it. You must win or you must lose and give him everything. It's a battle to the death of the whole of reality. It's a totality picture. Khrushchev wants the whole world, doesn't he? At least Mao Zedong does. Khrushchev does too, of course. He's just now a little kinder because for certain purposes. But his goal is that communism must cover everything. Well, of course, the Greek philosophy is a totality view. It excludes the Christian position. It excludes creation. And without creation, you have no Christianity. And yet, the Roman Catholic system builds on that which destroys Christianity. Now, that I can show you briefly by the theistic proof so-called, the so-called natural theology of Romanism. We'll come to Barth's denial of this natural theology and the current or recent Protestant attack on it by Barth and by others. But natural theology, according to the Romanists, is simply that man, by reason, and then they say, well, hasn't God given man reason? Do you want to deny that? Of course we don't want to deny that. But the question is, what is this reason? We say it's a created reason. And if it's a created reason, it shouldn't pretend to be able to tell what God is and must be, and what he can do and what he can't do, whether he can reveal himself or can't reveal himself, whether he can atone us if he doesn't feel like it he won't. Now, therefore, on reason, which, they say, is the gift of God, you see, then they're Christian on that score, to win you over, they say, look, the Bible teaches that. And then they particularly refer to Romans, the first chapter, the invisible things, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even the eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse. They like to leave off the last part but the first part seems to them to prove that man can prove the existence of God that he can have a natural theology. Now if you read Romans you will see there is no natural theology there. That is to say what Romans teaches, what the New Testament teaches, is that the revelation of God is there, and that that revelation is plain, so that the light is there round about man, to be sure, in the facts of this world, in the facts of history, in the constitution of man himself, so that if he looks at himself in the light of the revelation of God, then he should see himself as a creature, to be a creature. That's revelation. Now, revelation comes from above, but natural theology, that is what man does with that revelation by his reason and by his interpretative powers, that's theology. Now, the Romanist mixes up these two, natural revelation and natural theology, and any number of Protestants still do the same. When, they, when the Bible teaches plainly revelation in nature, or if you will, natural revelation, and they say that teaches natural theology. Well, of course, it does no such thing. Paul says in Romans, Nontes, that that is knowing God. Why did they know God? Did they know God because with Plato and with Aristotle they came to the idea that there is a God? No, that's not why they know God. Plato and Aristotle do not know God, the true God. They have, by their systems repress the revelation of the true God. Their God is one with man, and man is participant by means of his intellectual existence in this God. He is divine. He is himself immortal because he's deformed, And so, therefore, on this basis, on the Platonic Aristotelian basis, there is no revelation of God. That's a way of repressing it The Bible says God reveals himself as man's creator. And if man really interprets the world of facts, the world of science accurately and correctly and truly, then he should come to the conclusion that this world is created, that he's created. But you see, the trouble is that man as the sinner that he has become won't do that. And he's precisely out to repress this and to substitute a natural theology of the natural man for the revelation of God, which only those that believe in Christ can really and will, by the Holy Spirit's regenerating power, accept. Now, they're for knowing God. They know God because God has indelibly and fixed upon himself the impression of himself. Now, my wife and I had linoleum put in the kitchen. And it was indelible linoleum. You know, linoleum that just has figures painted on, and you scuff on it, and that wears the figure off. But if you have indelible linoleum, then, of course, the figure can't wear out, wear off because it's built in. Therefore, the linoleum must be worn out at the same time with the figure worn out. Now, God has indelibly infixed in man. Calvin says, infixus in viscaribus." and fixed in the very bowels of man the presence, the sense of the presence of God. Now that's all important because you see that's what you must start from that no man exists in the world but he knows if he, in the depth of his being he won't admit it, he won't talk about it he's repressing it he's talking about surface philosophies platonism, realism, what have you but underneath it all he knows that they're all dead wrong and that he's dead wrong and holding to and therefore, you've got to point that out to him. And you're not kind to him, and you're not reaching him and you're where he is, and you're not really winning him at all unless you tell him just exactly the truth about himself. A good doctor, a good doctor, when he comes to your bedside, if you're sick, you've got the stomachache. Doctor, give me an aspirin. Oh, buffering. They have twice as strong as aspirin. Oh, no, I... And if you feel awfully bad, whoa, whoa, whoa. get out of my you need Anacin. <laughs> right? And then, then you're all smiles again after that. Well, there is no Anacin. All natural theology is an Anacin, which will make you feel a little better, but it won't if your pe- appendix is ruptured. You need more than Anacin. You need an operation, and now, not later. Now, natural man is the man with a ruptured appendix, one who is internally rotten. He is corrupt, and he's dead in principle, and it only takes a little time before he's actually forever separated from God, eternally dead, and that's what we must tell man. The good physician doesn't listen to you about when you give an analysis or diagnosis of yourself. Suppose you had... You weren't feeling well. And I came to you, and I said to you, Oh, well, I've had the same thing. I'll give you... I've got wonderful pills for that. And here's a medical doctor. I happen to see one in the audience here. And he knows, and I don't know. To whom are you going to listen, to me or to him? If you're not a fool, you'll listen to him. Is that right? I mean that seriously. If you want to live, providing you want to live... You'll allow the diagnosis of him who knows instead of yourself or of some quack like myself who pretends to know but doesn't know. Now, there is only one great physician who knows. That's Jesus Christ. God speaks through him. And only if you allow yourself to be diagnosed in the light of the fact that Christ has spoken in the scriptures, that he says what you are, the trouble is that you think of yourself as participant in deity. You're not a participant in deity. You're not a little bit of divinity. You haven't got any divinity in you anywhere. You're a creature. You're a sinner. And you're bound for eternal death. That's kind to tell people that. You must do it kindly. You must do it winningly. You must do it persuasively. You must set up for the cup, of, second cup of coffee. All things to all men. But you must tell him the truth. Now then, if you tell him that truth, then you will at the same time keep him from building up these buildings, these car houses, on quicksand or on water.